And Mussorgsky obviously went to that, and that's what kind of influenced him into writing this piece. And it just really came to him in, in a flash. Uh, another example of his his real genius, Saint John. What is it on Bald Mountain? Saint John's Night on Bald Mountain. Uh, that that he wrote in five or seven days or something. Mozart, maybe we can imagine doing that kind of thing. I kind of go a step beyond that. I don't think I do piano or music or arts for the sake of other things. I think it's important for its own sake, you know, and, and human development and, and growing our mind and, you know, what are we here on earth for? I, I think Winston Churchill said something about when they were fighting in World War II, people said, well, we don't need all these instruments or pianos or whatever, let's just get rid of this stuff and use it for the war effort. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the effect of, well, then what are we fighting for? If not, basically, you know, so for our culture, for our arts. Welcome to the show. This is And If Love Remains. I am very excited to have my very good friend, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, with us today. Um, Elias is a good friend of mine. He's a, a concert pianist. He has over 200 uh, uh, performances to his name. He has, is it three CDs that you have out now, Elias? Two, three? Three, yeah. three, three CDs out. Um, solo, um, solo pianist uh, uh, CDs out. Um just a, a fabulous pianist, a wonderful musician, like I said, a good friend. And I'm excited to talk to him today um, about, a, uh, I think, I think something that, that, that you'll all be very excited about. It's, we're going to be talking about a wonderful piece of music. Um, but before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, tell me about yourself a little bit. Um, growing up, a uh, little bio, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. It's great to to be on the show and really to talk about uh, some things that are dear to my heart, music, and of course, the piece we're going to be talking about. Um, thanks for the introduction. So I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was born in Sweden, actually, in uh, Jutebori in Gothenburg. And uh, but we moved to the States when I was very young and grew up mostly in Albuquerque up through high school and studied there. I, I had a wonderful piano teacher for uh, most of my life there from about the age of six or so till uh, 18. And yes, I don't know how, how much you want me to expound upon, you know, going through the rest of my 
career? Well, I know or... you, you, you played, you, you played the piano, but you also played the violin. I understand. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. So I actually started, it's funny. My first memory in life, we try to think of what is, what is our first memory when we were kids and mine right. is of a violin lesson. And I've spoken to, you know, subsequently to my parents about when that would have been. And I remember it's just a snapshot in my mind. So I remember the teacher on her knees, my mom, my mom <laughs> went with me to all my lessons. My mom was on her knees and I was standing up with what turned out to be my first violin, which I still have. It's a little plastic violin, a little bit smaller than a 16th size. And oh, Wow. Yeah, it's it's tiny. And so and that was when we were in Denver. And that was before. So my brother had been born as before we moved to Albuquerque. So we moved when I had just turned three. So this memory was when I was, I think, two and a half. Wow. Uh, and that's my first memory. Yeah. So were you that precocious or, or were you, was, is your family musical or how did that, how did that happen where, where you were interested in, in violin, at least enough well, to, to... I, I can't say that I actually chose to play the violin <laughs> at that age. Uh, sure. You know, it was, it was certainly something my, my mom and my dad pushed or, or wanted. Maybe I heard it and liked it or something. And my mom was pretty musical. She danced when she was younger and sang. You know, I come from, her side of the family is, is Jewish, and so I came from a tradition of singing and and um, that sort of thing. So music was was always important, um, and also that side of the family. There are six grandkids. I'm sort of in the middle, and all of us took music lessons up to a certain age. So that that was important. Uh, so yeah, we started. I started on violin and moved to Albuquerque, and then I started piano when I was somewhere between five and six. You know, probably closer to six. And yeah, I actually have reconnected with my first piano teacher. Oh, really? Um, yeah, she she's retired, but she still teaches and moved back to Colorado. And and I only took about six months with her, but very nice lady. And and uh, and then I transferred to my teacher, Mary Beth Gunning, who was my first you know ma major I would say major teacher. And I studied with right. her for twelve years almost. Um, wow graduating high school yeah with uh we did guild i don't know if you're familiar with that it's a sort of national program and we, we did guild and i did the high school um senior program i think it's called uh, the diploma program or high school piano diploma so i i received that after 10 successful years and, and doing some large programs so yeah that was that was a lot of fun oh that <clears throat> sounds great that sounds like a, a great upbringing and from a musical standpoint. And, and did you, um, did, were you kind of, did people notice you as a guy who has talent and we really just want to, um, uh, you know, push him or encourage him. Mm -hmm. Um, it was that kind of your, what happened with you or, or was it natural for you? This, like you, you had this, this grand desire to want to play and, and, yeah. uh, I mean, this is this is a hard topic. First of all, the idea sure. of talent, and, sure. and certainly, I was no no genius, no you know, I don't use that word very often. And prodigy, I don't use that word. I certainly wasn't one of those. And uh, you know, I, I I was kind of, I guess, a big fish in a small pond in Albuquerque. There were some other very strong students uh, as I was growing up, somewhere in my studio, somewhere from other other teacher studios, and. We usually competed at the same things in theory or in piano or whatever. Uh, and I was very active still at that time with violin and, and one of the top, you know, violinists in the city. And I was in the youth symphony program, which 
a very strong youth symphony program in Albuquerque. Um, and I was with the conductor who's actually quite well known. He recently passed away, Dale Kempter, but a very prominent person and really got that program going. So I had a, a lot of support. I would say familial support was very important to me. I was lucky in that regard. Uh, they saw it as important. They uh, certainly my mom and, and she pushed me. You know, she tells stories. She told stories. You know, she passed away a few years back, but she told stories of me not having to be asked to practice. I always wanted to. Now, I'm sure I was I had to practice sometimes, too. And I know she asked me a lot of a lot of days to practice. But I think she wanted to inculcate in me this sort of love and and put it in my mind that this was my desire uh, this sort of child right. psychology that she was using it. And I think it worked because I grew to really love, uh, love the piano and love music. I mean, I was torn, even when I went to college, I didn't know whether I was going to study violin piano or, you know, I went as a bio pre-med major. So I was heavily into the sciences. Uh, and I really liked science and math and, uh, and chess. I was one of the top state chess players as, as a, uh, as a scholastic player, we say under 18. And, now I'm one of the top, you know, maybe five or ten players in the state in terms of uh, in terms of my strength. Although my rating hasn't caught up, but anyway, um, <laughs> it, will, it will. Yeah. So, you know, for the, those of you for those of you listening to in the future, we're in the we're in the middle of the the coronavirus right now. So you know, as soon as things settle down, you know, uh, you know, Doctor Pedersen's going to be rocking and rolling on and, and getting those that rating up. I, I don't know about that. We'll see. But you know, certainly I had I had a lot of support from the family, a lot of support from my teachers at school and private teachers, and just I was in a a culture that my my family created, my mom created, of music being important and not just being a hobby. You know, and as a teacher now, I see how uh, imperative that is for the families to really step it up and and make music. Uh, one of the focal points, uh, and you can't just say, "Well, you, the kids will do it on their own. They'll practice. They'll get their work done." No, it's it's not like that. Uh, and I right. meet tons of adults too that that say, "Oh, I wish you know I could play piano now. I just didn't have the talent." And um, you know, maybe that's the case to be somebody like Evgeny Kisin or something. Uh, you know, one of these amazing pianists. But just to play, you you can get quite far if you have. The, I say the trifecta, like the good student, yes, but a good teacher and a good family support system. Right. Uh, and you can really get quite far. So, yeah, I, I had well, all those think, things working in my favor. I mean, my, my personal theory is is that talent is really more of a measure, or what people call talent is more of a measure of desire, almost than anything else. I think there's some things that we we're born with. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. you know, some, but some of that is desire, like some of that desire we're born with. Which takes kind of takes me to the next question, and, and you mentioned a couple of things, of um, how important, and, and we haven't talked about this at all, but mm -hmm. um, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how important <laughs> is culture, like um, mm -hmm. the, the culture of having these these uh, youth symphonies and and um, uh, strong piano guilds, as, as you call it, and things like that that allowed people get, that gave people young people the opportunity to 
um, to experience music on that kind of a level. How important do you find that? Oh, very. I mean, you, you brought up, we could talk for an hour on just this and uh, I'll, I'll try to tackle a couple things. One is that music is still using the sort of barred system, uh, which most fields or genres or whatever have not, they don't use as much anymore. It's the one-on-one -on -one. and, you know, it's costly in many ways, mm -hmm. uh, but it's so effective having the one-on-one -on -one teaching the tutoring system. And nowadays it's, it seems to be only wealthy people that can have all those private tutors. You know, I think right. the, I think our society and culture is realizing that the one-on-one -on -one time is necessary in some ways. You just can't keep piling kids on, on teachers. I mean, look at how the public education has, has gone just in my lifetime. I'm 40 years old now. And, um, the, the class sizes, you know, have for the most part gone up and, we're just expected to have one teacher lecturing in, in front of 30 or 40 kids. It just doesn't work. Um, we have so many different kinds of kids from so many kinds of backgrounds, uh, and, and we need that individualized attention. So that's one part of music being very important. Uh, I like to say, you know, we have the STEM, uh, the STEM subjects. Science, uh -huh. I can't even remember what they are. It's, uh, science, science, technology, technology engineering. Engineering math. and math, yeah. So I like to talk about STEAM, and this has kind of caught on the last few years, which uh, the A is for the arts. Um, right. And I don't see the arts as a superfluous thing. I, Of course, I'm biased because I'm in that, but I think it's uh, – I mean, there are numerous scientific studies showing the correlation between doing well in the arts and doing well in math, science, and et cetera. Um, I kind of go a step beyond that. I don't think I do piano or music or arts for the sake of other things. I think it's important for its own sake. You know, I agree. And, and human development and, and growing our mind and, you know, what are we here on earth for? I, I think Winston Churchill said something about when they were fighting in World War II, people said, well, we don't need all these instruments or pianos or whatever. Let's just get rid of this stuff and use it for the war effort. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the effect of, well, then what are we fighting for? If not basically, exactly. you know, so for our culture, for our arts, um, and I think that's important. And in the States, you know, we're, we're a young country relatively. I know people won't want to hear that. But if you look at uh, European oh, yeah. cultures, for, for the Western world at least, uh, we're, we're a relatively young country. And um, we've become a very successful country, obviously. And some, some of that has led to decadence. And I won't get too much into that culture war or clash. But I think we've lost a lot of the... Uh, appreciation or respect for arts because they're hard and they take time and they take energy and we're we're in a, a much faster culture where we want things immediately and now i sound probably like an old fogey but we uh, i think art is so important because you really have to dedicate to something and you don't see the effects immediately you know you might have to mm -hmm. dedicate yourself to learning a piece and uh, it's not like even a difficult math concept, you can, you can understand that cerebrally, kind of get it, work on it. Okay, think about it, cogitate, you know, for a week, and then okay, I kind of get it. Let's apply that to a couple problems. Okay, I get it. With a very difficult p uh, piano work, let's say it might take you a year to learn that piece, and then you might bring it back in ten years and play it much differently and have more insight. I mean, it's a much longer range goal. Uh, each piece, right. it's like writing you know, a thesis for, for math, uh, or I'm just trying to 
think of some correlation. And that's difficult for our culture and our society. And we just don't have the support around it. We, it's not built in that that's important. Um, the value, it's very hard to evaluate and put a valuation on lessons and piano lessons. And so mm -hmm. people like me, people like you, we struggle you know, to, to offer or ask our prices, which are totally reasonable given our backgrounds. Uh, you know, I have a doctorate. I've been playing piano since I was five. So 35 years, I've been teaching 20 years. If, if I was working in any other profession, in the medical profession, and I had 20 years under my belt and 35 years of experience, you know, I, I wouldn't be making the paltry sums I'm making right now. But uh, that's, that's the nature of it. And we don't have that value in our, our culture. So I know I'm giving a long-winded answer, but the culture aspect is very important in our society. So one of the things I, I encourage people to do, um, my students specifically, but but my my anybody who, when I'm able to have a, a conversation about music or about the art, is I'll talk to them about, for example, the um, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and mm -hmm. everybody is familiar with the Ode to Joy. I mean, everybody loves it. I love it. It's 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 tremendous in so many ways. Yeah. But if you really want to appreciate the Ode to Joy. You cannot appreciate it unless, at a minimum, you listen to the entire symphony. That's you've got to point. go. Yeah. You've got to go through the process of listening to that hour-plus symphony to really experience the ode to joy in the way that it was meant to be experienced. And yeah. that's a minimum. I mean, to to be honest, you should have. You should know some Mozart. You should know some Bach. You should know some things. You should know yeah. a few other things in order to truly appreciate it. But at a minimum, you should at least listen to the entire thing, and to yeah. take an hour or an hour and a half out of a day. Well, it's not that um, long, but it's it's long. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I maybe maybe sometimes in the in the forties it was. <laughs> yeah, but no, but to take but to, to take the time to listen to it, and yeah. and then and to come to that culmination of 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 the ode to joy and to hear that in its full splendor is just mm -hmm. a, a wonderful thing and you feel like you've you've it's like you've climbed a mountain it's like i did it i i appreciate this mm -hmm. and it which kind of takes me into the piece that we're going to discuss which is pictures at an expedition and i'm going to start kind of at the end a little bit with that sure. with where we're going is 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 why why this piece why should people spend a few minutes and listen to this piece um, and, and, um, maybe this is the wrong spot to put it, but I'm going to ask it anyway, why should people oh, listen fine. to pictures at an expedition? Yeah. A picture at an expedition is a phenomenal 
piece and has so much built in around it, sort of the enigmatic stuff. It, it's just almost a mystery. But I'll, also, I wanted to touch on that concept of listening to a large scale work like Beethoven's Ninth or Pictures. Uh, and um, there's a lot to be said for putting in that time and also the difference between hearing it live and hearing it on a recording or on YouTube or something. Uh, there's nothing that can replace that live experience. And I think it's apropos to talk about that now because during this coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, we're really missing the, the uh, interaction in, in person. And so we're realizing that you just can't get the same effect when you do something online. And <clears throat> I would say a lot of universities and schools have been going online the last decade or so and thinking that's the solution. And, and it isn't. Uh, that isn't the solution to our, our uh, education. And I think people are starting to realize how important that is. And so going to a live concert, again, taking us back to the original uh, question about my upbringing too. You know, we went to as many live concerts as we could, or uh, they could be classical concerts. Um, you know, they could be comedy things with music. You know, one of my first inspirations was Victor Borga. We'll get into that later. Um, oh, yeah. And then we went to plays. We had a very good uh, CLOA, which is Albuquerque Civic Light Opera Association. And I was actually in The Wizard of Oz when I was nine or 10 years old and performed in front of something like 25,000 people over the course of 17 performances. And, you know, being a part of that and going to play five or six plays, you know, they're musicals basically a year and going to symphony concerts and going to recitals. You know, that was just made part of that experience of my growing up. And a lot of my friends were going to movies and going to school dances, you know, and I, I didn't go to a lot of school dances. Uh, maybe I regretted it at the time. Now I realize that I really enjoyed going to the, the concerts they went to. And, right. um, and so I, actually, I remember there was one concert I went to. Well, not a concert. It was a play and it was at my high school. And the same evening there was, I think I was in seventh grade. So there was a seventh grade dance going on, but we had tickets to, to the play. So I went to the play and it was, I can't remember the name, but it was something with like four women were the main cast. And there was one uh, fictitious man that wasn't actually part of it. And they were play acting things that they would do in like the 1940s and 50s activities based around a guy actually being there and serving them and doing things like in the ice cream parlor and this and that. And so right. they needed somebody from the audience and they just happened to go by and we had come in a little bit late. We just, uh, uh, just saw the very beginning. Um, and I was, you know, 12 years old, I think. And they saw me and, and they said, Oh, come on up. And I, I wasn't expecting anything. So I went up and they gave me a fake camera and told me to take a picture of them in their outfits and at the ice cream parlor. And it was kind of cool. I was on stage for maybe two minutes and then sure. I went back to my seat. And it turns out later, uh, the parents of one of my classmates, uh, they were there and they said, hey, that was so cool. We didn't even know you were in this play. I said, I wasn't. You know, they just called me. And they said, aren't you at the – their, their daughter was at the dance. And I said, no, I, I didn't go to the dance because I had tickets to this. And anyway, it was kind of fun. That, oh, that was just, cute. you know, an, an illustration of the priorities. So well, anyway, that does, I, that, that does go back to that that culture thing. And, and, mm -hmm. and in fact, the, let, let's – I mean, you, you mentioned Victor Borga, who's just uh, so phenomenal. D mm -hmm. Tell me, who were, who were some of your other influences, inspirations growing up? Oh, well, that, that's, yeah, too too big to name. But certainly, um, you know, parents were big. In, my mom, especially, she came to all my lessons growing up until I was a certain age where the teachers said, look, 
you know, he needs to be more independent and uh, do this thing on his own. And I was, I was probably eight or nine by then, maybe 10 and taking hour lessons. So, um, you know, she, but she was always supportive and my grandparents too, you know, her parents, I didn't know my father's parents. They were, they were much older. He, He was the youngest of, of 10. And so I, uh, I grew up with in, in Albuquerque with my mom's folks and the, her immediate family. So they were very supportive. And even my grandfather, he knew how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on the violin, and he played that at my birthday every year. Um, <laughs> you know, he was like he was born in 1910, so he was uh, 70 years older than I was. Um, anyway, so they they were big influences. The family, also my uh, you know fellow classmates or or studio mates. I I always heard my studio mates playing in the studio recitals you know we had those once a month uh, and then two major ones per year and i'd hear a piece like oh that's amazing i have to play that you know and talk to my teacher well you're you know you're not ready yet but you'll get there um and then concerts we went to i i remember some of my first concerts of big name pianists um let's see i heard yefim bronfman when i was pretty young and he's still one of my favorite pianists i heard richard good when I was, gosh, I wrote a report on, oh, and was it Zoltan Cochise or somebody? Maybe it was Bronfman. I wrote a report on him for my sixth or seventh grade music project. And okay. so even back then, I didn't know that they were that famous or that big. I mean, this is also 30 years ago. They weren't at the height of their careers yet. But, you know, these are big, big names, and it was important to see. And I just was blown away by, by their playing. But one yeah. of these that I remember a lot was Victor Borga and you know, he was, he's so funny. And of course I get a lot of the jokes now more than I did when I was a kid because <laughs> I just, I just understand it. But we went to a concert, a show, a concert, you know, of his, uh, and our entire family went, my two aunts and uncles. And I think a couple of my cousins, my grandparents, my parents, and my brother and I somehow sat separately. I remember we were in the left, um, uh, third of the rows, probably eight or nine rows back. I can remember where we were sitting in that hall. And I think it was my ninth or 10th birthday. Uh, I have to look if I can find the ticket, if it's from 89 or 90. And we, uh, we wrote a note to Victor Borg or my mom. She had this idea. She, she was always going above and beyond and trying to get stuff and, you know, get in the back door for things and give me opportunities. And my brother too, um, and so we we wrote a note, and and Victor Borga, you know, is Danish, and we're Swedish background. My father's Swedish, so okay. Danish and Swedish are similar enough for writing, you know. So we wrote the note in English. I think my father wrote the part in Swedish. My mom claims we wrote something in Hebrew, but I know she doesn't write Hebrew fluent, so I don't think we did it in <laughs> Hebrew. I'm pretty sure it's English and Swedish. We gave it to the um, stage manager in the back, which turned out to be his son, Victor Borga's son. Oh, Anyhow. Wow. He gave the note to Victor Borgia. So Victor Borgia, the first half, he did the whole thing. And then he announced that the second half, he came out and he said, there's a a young man in the audience celebrating his ninth or 10th, I can't remember, birthday. And uh, would he he please stand up or something? So I stood up and I was in the front row. And he made some quip about, oh, you two have been – my brother was like seven or eight at the time. But he was Uh – he had gone to concerts too. So he was very well behaved. And uh, and they said – 
he's Victor Borga said, why can't the rest of you be respectful and quiet like these two boys or something, you know, <laughs> always picking little, <laughs> you know, pointing out things. So anyway, I said, it's an, you know, I was kind of embarrassed, but hi, my name is Elias Axel Pedersen and I'm such and such years old. And, and he said, okay, I'm going to play something for you. And then he goes off into a spiel with a happy birthday, you know, with various, in various uh, styles by different composers, uh -huh. Mozart style, Chopin style. And, and I don't even remember so much the playing. I just remember standing and him talking. And, and then we went to meet him backstage later and got some pictures. And um, Oh, yeah. wonderful. It was, it was pretty cool. And then when Marvin Hamlish, I don't know if you know him, he's a great pianist, entertainer. And um, I don't know if he's, he passed away. He'd be pretty old now. Victor Borga passed away like 10 years ago. But uh, right. Marvin Hamlish came to town a few years later. And my mom did the same thing for my brother on his birthday. So we went and then Marvin oh, Hamlet wow. introduced my brother and, you know, played some happy birthday thing for him. So I, I got Victor Borgia and my brother got Marvin Hamlet. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing. That's pretty, that's a, that's a, oh, that's wonderful. What a great story. That's, that's yeah. stupendous, man. But anyway, back to the live, you know, listening and, and going to live concerts right. and spending the time. And you mentioned, sort of understanding something and you get a lot more out of it. That, that's another interesting topic because I talk to a lot of non-musicians when they go to my concerts or recitals. Um, and I've played a lot. I think you mentioned 200 recitals. I think I've played now up to 600 performances, solo or chamber, and, and I'm not including the orchestral. Well, I only shorted you by two thirds. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, I'm not like uh, Zimmerman. I'm, I'm sure he's played over 5,000 concerts. But, uh, yeah, these people are incredible. So I, um, I think it's very important when I've spoken with non-musicians at my concerts and they say, oh, I just, I love that piece. And, you know, it, it touched me in a, such a way, you know, and sometimes I, I relate, but sometimes I don't because I don't know what it is to remove myself from the understanding that I have mm. and my background my, and my knowledge of the piece. So Sometimes I hear pieces, uh, and I went through a, a long phase in my life where I was fairly judgmental of classical performances, let's say, um, of especially pianists and violinists. So I'd hear something, and I, I would just find myself being judgmental of the piece because I knew the piece well. I knew the technique and how to play it and you know the music, musical phrases, whatever, instead of just enjoying the piece for what it was. And I think right. a lot of non-musicians might not have heard the piece or might have heard it and don't remember it. And they can kind of experience it as a first-time thing. So there are, there are advantages and disadvantages. I think the advantages to knowing a lot about it outweigh them because if you can enjoy the piece for how great it is and understand all the things that are involved um, and the real difficulties of, of what it takes. Mm -hmm. So you know, somebody might watch me, and, and, and the two comments I always get asked, um, and I played a lot, I've played a lot of retirement homes before, and two comments are always – you know, how do your fingers move that fast? And how do you memorize <laughs> right. all those notes? And those are two kind of mis, mis, not misguided, but they don't understand what's behind that, you know, how memory works, um, mm -hmm. how physicality works. You know, so, so I always say, can you wiggle your fingers like this? And almost all of them, even those with arthritis, can wiggle their fingers fairly quickly. And I said, right. so your fingers can move just just about as fast as mine, maybe not, but it's the you know coordination, and that's all in the mind and the and the body and the bigger muscle groups, not necessarily just the fingers. And then memorizing, 
is another misunderstood facet of not just not just music but anything and now there are ted talks on a lot of the, a lot of this kind of stuff and we realize with a lot of the advancements in brain cognition that we do things like chunking uh mm-hmm. which wasn't talked about you know decades which ago. musicians have known for i mean that's we've known that for a long time that's we've how you remember that for a long time but it hasn't been in the scientific community let's say as long and the whole concept we don't memorize a piece and every bit of information like a computer would the o's and right. zeros and ones of okay there are ten thousand notes in this piece i have ten thousand bits of information no we memorize in groups in physical gestures in har- harmonies in melodies and and then all those are broken down. Um, so it's more. It's sometimes it's more like a dance, you know. Yeah, yeah. The choreography is very important, and and I, and that's important to teach too. And I don't mean the sort of not, not to pick on Long Long too much because he is a fantastic uh, pianist, and you know, but but he really has a lot of choreography to his playing, and I think it sometimes detracts, and he he almost adds the choreography. I'm not talking about adding the choreography. Right. Uh, talk about realizing where does your hand need to go? What kind of motion do you need for this passage? Um, exactly. All those technical things. That's choreography. So, it, yeah. Anyway, I, I know I'm getting off point a little bit, but no, this I think is going. I, yeah, sure. This is exactly right. This is, I, I love it. So let's let's take it back to to pictures for a minute. Um, I know that that you um, you actually use this as your your doctor uh, thesis. Talk mm-hmm. about that process. How did you decide to do that? Yeah, that was. Um, I mean, it's been a piece in my mind for many many years. I, I don't know when I first heard it. I'm sure I heard the Ravel orchestration, which we'll get into uh, first mm-hmm. before I heard the the original piano version and or or other versions there are many and you know that was when i was even thinking about applying for doctoral degrees uh, i wanted to have a project in mind and a topic in mind so that i wouldn't be scrambling while i was doing the degree and i could focus more on on the degree aspect so even before i applied to university of montreal where i ended up doing my doctorate i'd already recorded pictures and i'd already worked on the piece, actually, my first lesson was with Sergei Babayan on this, and it was a phenomenal lesson. And I played it for uh, a couple of my uh, other teachers or colleagues, and I, it was in my mind. And there's just so much richness to the piece. The story behind it is so fascinating, and <clears throat> I just thought there's so much to be done with this. Now, there's obviously a lot written about it. it it's a very well studied piece, um, but I hadn't found as much, uh, or I'd found a lot of conflicting information. And so I thought, uh, this is something I can add to, because I didn't want to do what a lot of doctoral students do for their theses, and just kind of rehash something that's been done. And, and I wanted to try to avoid that, even though I was doing a famous piece. So I wanted to take it from the aspect you certainly of didn't do that. By the way, I've read your thesis, and you certainly didn't do that. It's oh, good. Very well, one interesting. of the 
Yeah, one of the, the books actually that almost dissuaded me was by Michael Russ. And this was one of my main, uh, it's in my bibliography. It's a phenomenal book. It's very small, in fact. It's maybe 50 pages and it's a, it's a little little book. But the amount of detail that he goes into, both historical, analytical, technical, um, looking at the musicological aspects, the ethnomusicological aspects, you know, like the Polish. And he, there are influences from four wow. or five different cultures and languages in the piece. Uh, that also interests me a lot, just the international right. uh, variety or, or flavor of it. Um, there's a Jewish flavor to a couple of the pieces, the uh, Shmuel and, and Goldenberg or Samuel Goldenberg. Um, and uh, there's one other one which was kind of alludes to the Jewishness, but it's more of the Polish ghetto, which at that time would have mostly been Jewish uh, in the late 1800s uh, or mid 1800s. But anyway, I, I like that there's a French aspect to it. There's the Italian uh, influence. Of course, there's the Russian influence. And I, I just love that um, aspect. You know, my family, my mom's side of the family uh, his, is from well, it's hard to say Russia, but it, it, from areas around Minsk and Kiev. Mm -hmm. And so now okay. Kiev is, is Ukrainian, but at the, in the uh, 1800s, because I think my great-grandmother emigrated in 1905 or something, one, one of my great-great-great-great-great-grandparents came over on the Lusitania. And, oh, wow. uh, and I mean, they came over with nothing, and they cool. moved to the How Midwest, cool and they were farmers, and they grew up, and you know, all my family on that side became farmers, basically. Um, yeah. And the, and the peasants, you know, and so that also reminds me in, in pictures, there's a lot of that peasant uh, feel and not right. just the peasant, but the feeling of coming from the countryside. And so that well, yeah, there's, there's a real folkness to it. Folk element, you know? yeah, that's a huge part of it. Um, and so I, I was drawn to that and that my my ancestors were kind of from those areas, whether the city was owned by Kiev or Poland or Ukraine at the time. You know, or Belarusia, whatever it was, uh, and that that's so, so cool. So there are so many facets of the piece that I loved. It's such a raw, powerful piece. Um, it's a large scale work. It's one of the big, you know, monuments of the piano literature of the Romantic era. Uh, it's it clocks in between twenty six and forty three minutes. We'll get into that. It's it's sort of the most uh, versatile in a way large romantic work. I mean, if you look at another yeah. thinking of the large romantic works, Liz Sonata, which is a pinnacle, you know, the, the variations of recordings with Liz Sonata, and there are hundreds of recordings for that. Right. Um, they clock in between, I would say 26 minutes and 34 minutes, you know, on the long end, which is quite a, a span but it doesn't compare to the differences in pictures. And why, why can someone play the same piece and it be so vastly different in interpretation? Um, there's a lot there. So all of those aspects of the piece really uh, fascinated me and drew me to it. And I thought this is something I can add to and I can really make it uh, a project.
it is kind of a personal piece. I mean, I, I like how you how you talked about that because it's, and I don't know if it is the folkiness of it, the pendant, the, the you know they use a lot of um, peasant um, stuff, yeah, yeah, peasant stuff. I was gonna say uh, um, pentatonic scales. There's oh, yeah. a lot of that kind of feel to it that that it feels um, very earthy, and um, so so I wonder if that's a re that's a reason why it is it is almost like a personal journey for somebody to play that piece. I have, I have not played it. I know you mm -hmm. have, but um, in listening to recordings of it and listening to it, it seems like a, a piece that if I were to learn it, it would be a, more, a very personal journey to get through that piece. Yeah, it is. And, and it's almost daunting when, whenever you start a large scale piece, especially this one, I, I start playing at the beginning and I think to myself, Oh my gosh, here we go. I'm, I'm, I can't get up from my seat for 30. I played in about 33 <laughs> minutes. Um, and that's, that's it there. Of course there are sections and, and vignettes. They're sort of divided, but you have to connect over. You mentioned something very interesting, the pentatonic scale. And when I was studying this, I actually traveled to uh, Bloomington, Indiana. That's where IU is. And there's a uh -huh. composer out there, um, who, David Canfield, who's the president of IKVA ICVA, which is the, uh, Russian, uh, um, the, the abbreviation for the Russian title of the piece. Okay. Um, so Kartinki Svistovsky, I have to actually remember how to say that, but he, I, I stayed with him for actually a week and went through his collection. He used to be the largest secondhand, uh, record collector in the world. You know, he had a whole house, oh, wow. I don't know, 60, 80,000 records in his house. And, uh, now records are, not as not as well sold although they're coming back they're but definitely coming back <laughs> they're definitely coming back yeah vinyl is coming back so we uh, i st studied with him and he mentioned something interesting especially regarding the pentatonic scale and some of the recordings of more recent years um, there are a lot of asian pianists uh chinese korean most uh, chinese korean mostly taiwanese japanese and some from you know thailand and some other southeast asian countries and the reason why this particular piece resonates, this is part of his theory, but kind of what he's seen uh -huh. resonates with them is because a lot of Eastern music, if you think of Peking opera um, or traditional Asian, like Chinese folk music, which isn't based on our 12 tone Western scale, um, a lot of that is based on pentatonic things. So, mm -hmm. so something like pictures, which has pentatonic elements in it, uh, suits that that culture very well and kind of resonates with them in a way that something like Liszt sonata or Chopin, one of his three sonatas, wouldn't. Uh, and that's kind right. of fascinating that this piece can can transcend different cultures. And I think that's partly because of how Russia was situated. You know, some part of Russia is really part of Asia, and some part of it is is very close, uh, closely akin to Europe. Western Europe. And so they kind of straddle both of the main cultures of, of the world or, or hemispheres, let's say, of the world. And they have influences from those. And the, like I was saying, this piece is so international. Um, he's drawing from a lot of these other uh, influences. So, yeah, I think later on, Debussy and those folks started to also be very interested in, in what was called the Orient at the time. Um, if right. you look at Pagod in Debussy and like they're they're drawing on the uh, Japanese temples, Chinese temples, and um, that sound, the pentatonic sound, is very prominent in Debussy's works and Ravel and Satie. 
but uh, you know, Mussorgsky is coming 30, 40 years before them. So it's pretty interesting. So let's talk about him a little bit. Let's talk about Mussorgsky and, and, and who he was and, and, you know, leading up to writing this piece. Like, so who, who are we talking about? Who's this composer? Well, he's a very enigmatic person in a way. I mean, he had, he had a very good lifestyle. I would say he was born obviously into landed gentry. So his parents, uh, I don't know what titles they had, but certainly they owned serfs. Uh, and this was before the emancipation of the serfs in Russia. And I, I looked that up last night. I, I couldn't remember. So I was looking at my thesis. It was in 1861. And Mussorgsky okay. was born in 33. So um, 1830, So of course he, uh, or sorry, it's 1839. I was thinking of another one of the Russian five. He was born in 1839. So by the time the emancipation came, you know, he would have been, what, 21, 22 years old. And that would have affected his life a lot. I mean, it's hard to to really claim any like, oh, you know, too bad you lost all your slaves, kind of thing. But right. the serfs <laughs> at the time got to be landowners themselves, and the usually the serfs from a particular la- landowner they they stayed in that area and got they you know, became more independent. Let's say uh, it was still a hierarchical, very classist structure, but. Mussorgsky was born into the more upper class, and as such, he had that career kind of laid out for him of going either into military or governmental service, uh, which was pretty common. Um, now, his dad died when he was younger-ish, and his mom, you know, that was a big loss to him, too, when his mom died. Uh, he had a brother, Filaret, who was, I can't remember the age difference, but only only a couple years difference. Um, so... He had the good things, you know, in his life and a good upbringing. I would say today, if we looked at him, um, we might find some some disorders or personality. We didn't know them back then, but there might mm-hmm. be bipolarity. I don't know if that's ever conclusive. Um, he was so, certainly a dipsomaniac. He, he drank a lot, and that's one of the reasons that led to his ultimate demise at the age of 42, quite young, actually. In fact, his birth date was uh, three days ago, and his death date is in three days. So he he died, you know, a week after he turned forty-two, and, oh, and wow. he became an alcoholic on and off uh, due to whatever pressures or psychological pressures, and and you know maybe he had some personality disorders uh, which just were not taken care of. Um, and he he certainly had a good friend group around him, the the Mighty Five, the Mogucha Kuchka. With mm-hmm. uh, that was Balakirev, Mili Balakirev, Sethar Kui. He seemed to have uh, some people that believed in him. Yeah, Rimsky Korsakov and uh, and Borodin, but um, and he had some supporters as well. Dargamishki was was big, and um, Nadezhda Van Mech, She supported a lot of that kind of Russian culture and those new composers. But um, yeah, he had he had some difficulties, and and he had to he was struggle a struggling artist in a way. He was never that well off he was always getting small little governmental jobs and working and trying to make ends meet uh, while being a composer and being sort of on the front lines you know the avant-garde per se he, he was right. really in the first or one and a half first and a half generation of of russian composers i mean before him it was glinka glinka was the father of of russian music really of russian classical music yeah. And Glenka was about 20 some years old, 25 years older or so. And between that was Dargo Mishki, who was a little bit older, but not so well known. 
but then you get the Russian five, you know, board in the ones I mentioned. And, and they didn't have the tradition of like the European schools with right. the Bach or Buxtehude or even in the English bird, William Bird And, you know, Russia didn't have all of these. I mean, they were probably, there probably were some composers, but they just were not of international fame. When I say international, I'm mostly speaking about the Western world, of, of course. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, he, he had a very uh, – he, he struggled a lot. I think a lot of internal struggles. and But he was a genius too and a, a true genius. I mean he, he could just have bouts – you know, he wrote pictures at an exhibition in, in the span of three weeks. Um, and wow. it just like came to him. And you can see uh, in his sketches and in his letters, one of the – uh, books I used for my thesis was a compilation of all his letters to and from Mussorgsky in his life. It's a wonderful um, book and it's out of print now, but uh, it shows some of his sketches. He mostly wrote to Rimsky-Korsakov, who was a close friend, and occasionally Balakirev, who was sort of the older person in the group of five and the leader. And <clears throat> he was the one that had the most, let's say, European training or, or conservative conservatory type training. Uh, Mussorgsky didn't have that. Obviously he had teachers and very good teachers and leaders and um, mentors, but he didn't go through that conservatory system because it didn't really exist in Russia. It was his group that started the whole St. Petersburg school. And then the Anton Nikolai Rubinstein and Tchaikovsky were sort of the Moscow school. Uh, and those were kind of battling it out. And the Moscow school was more the traditionalist. The St. Petersburg school was more the avant-gardist. So was that the, was that the free music school? Is that that was called something like that? Sort um, of, yeah. I mean, it's it's come down and it's changed names now. And so in Russia, you've got the Moscow Conservatory, which is the, the descendant of that, and the Ganesin school, which is for children, you know, gifted children. That's kind of the descendant of that. In St. Petersburg, you've got their conservatory. I think it's something like free music school, but, but that's basically what they were, the free new music school. And, and they were more the, on, on the edge, you know, avant-garde stuff. The well, there's, um, more traditionalist. And, and I want to get into a little bit. Well, let me ask you this. So, so coming into to picture specifically, how did that happen? What, what um, inspired it? What is it roughly about? Yeah, so he was, you know, he wrote in, in three weeks, you can see in his sketches and his letters that um, he wrote, oh, I have this theme that's going through my head, I can't get it out of my head. And it's, uh, and here it is, and here's this piece and vignettes and whatever. And it's based on, um, so this goes back to another very close friend that he had, a sculptor, painter, architect, Victor Hartman, who was another one of these, you know, proud Russians that the, or Russia was proud of this, this rising star, let's say. Um, maybe he was the IM pay of his generation, but he was <laughs> designing everything. He was very young and very successful uh, as a Russian architect. And he designed or he had some drawings for some design of a great gate of Kiev, which was supposed to commemorate their you know thousand year anniversary talking about old cities. And, uh, and so Victor Hartman, was a very promising young artist and about the same age as Mussorgsky. But he died, I can't remember, I think it was of a sudden aneurysm when he was very young, you know, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. I'd have to look at his dates. But, you know, that really devastated uh, Mussorgsky because it was one of his close friends. And what Stasov did, Stasov was another, uh, he was a leading art critic, 
and uh, some others, they kind of got together and said, you know, we need to hold some sort of exhibition in honor of Hartman just to <clears throat> display all his works for the public to see, you know, how great this artist was. And so they did that. And they had, I don't know, maybe five, 600 pieces of art, uh, paintings, drawings, sketchings, sculptures, etc. cetera. Uh, and this whole exhibition at a, at a large hall, you know, probably a, some sort of convention center downtown. And Mussorgsky obviously went to that. And that's what kind of influenced him into writing this piece. And it just really came to him in, in a flash. Uh, another example of his, his real genius, St. John, what is it, on Bald Mountain? St. John's Night on Bald Mountain? Uh-huh. Uh, that, that he wrote in five or seven days or something. No he kidding. wrote it, full or everything. And it, it's like we can't imagine. Oh, Mozart, maybe we can imagine doing that kind of thing. You know, but it's, right. it's a totally different, like we were talking about the other day, it's a, a different medium almost or a different language that he's writing in. Um, right. This is a much when more he, In some ways, he's making, up, he's making up the language as, as he's going in a way. Yeah. You know, obviously he he's, he's, he's learned. He's not, he's not unlearned, but he's, 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 as you said, on the avant-garde, he's making this up. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of new things, textures, ideas, musical gestures were were being implemented and you know we think of somebody on the opposite spectrum like beethoven who toiled and toiled and worked so hard i mean yes he was a right. genius but the amount of work that he put into it um this goes back to the whole appreciation thing of pieces if you look at some of his works he has 12 13 versions of something uh, i know when i right. recorded one of my cds is with the violinist the chamber recording we did the spring sonata and if you look at just the melody you know, the the versions that Beethoven went through to get it to that stage, it's amazing. If you look at the first version he had, it's it just, you know, it, it's it's a ghost of that. Uh, it, it's paltry in comparison. And uh, the final product is so beautiful. But Mussorgsky, he toiled a bit internally, but when he was struck by inspiration, let's say, he just, his you know, ink, ink flowed from his, his feather quill per se, or his pen. Um, <laughs> so this this uh, exhibition of Hartman's works was the initial inspiration. And then the work itself, if we can, you know, we can get into that, uh, yeah. is a telling of the experience of going to the exhibition hall. And I think it's in fantastic programmatic work. We talk about music as being absolute music or programmatic music um, <clears throat> and programmatic music, follows a specific program or poem or story that's external to the music. Absolute music is more for the sake of itself. Right. Whereas when we teach, we try to introduce external things like, Oh, doesn't this place sound like someone singing an aria or whatever? But, but that's not, uh, it's not. That's to help people understand. Yeah. Help people learn the language of it, you know, before they yeah. can. So, yeah. yeah, but but the pictures, uh, picture of an ex exhibition has an actual story with it, and he kind of guides you through. It's almost like a movie, but from the 1860s. You know, this would have been their movie at the time. You're you go to the concert hall and you imagine yourself at this exhibition. And uh, actually, I've seen orchestral concerts these days where they put a projector up with some of the old images. Um, oh, at least wonderful. Known at the time. And, and part of my thesis talks about uh, the new images that were found that were unearthed by a, or mm -hmm. discovered by a Japanese record or a TV team in the 1990s. They found some other images like in a, 
and a house that they think are associated or could be associated uh, might have been part of that original exhibition. Uh, and so I've included those pictures in the in my thesis. But um, I've seen people or, or orchestras that project those on a screen. So while you're listening, you kind of feel like you're going into the exhibition. It's it's really like a movie, you know, but uh, but black and white almost, you know. Right. Well, it's like pre-black and white movie. So well, the it color, opens, all the colors and the sound, you know. Exactly. <laughs> you, so you, really, that. you really have to imagine it. Um, but it's so spectacular in the way he presents it and you really feel that you're you're part of it and he goes a step further in making you part of the exhibition towards the end so that's one of my hip, uh, hypotheses in the thesis is it starts with a promenade which in french uh, promene is kind of to walk to wander and the promenade is just the theme that we all know and you're just the spectator walking along uh, among the, the art art exhibition and then there's an art piece or a sculpture gnomus is the first one and you get all these little vignettes interrupted by the promenade so you're walking around and here's another vignette here's a painting here's a this or that and by right. the end of the piece the promenade theme gets built in so when you have the uh, con mortuous with the dead so he used latin also as an inspiration the italian latin thing and uh you, you see the dead skulls in the catacombs in France and in Italy. And then that catacomb theme is actually the promenade theme as part of it. So you're, you're actually the dead wow. you know, walking you know, among yourself. Uh, and so it's pretty cool how Mussorgsky brings the listener into the paintings themselves. And then you, you end with that eeriness before you go into Baba Yaga, which is the famous witch you know in russian uh -huh. folklore who, who eats children grinds their bones up in a mortar and pestle which she rides through the night screeching i mean it's very vivid and uh, it must have been scary even to hear this as a russian child in the 1860s or 70s and and then after that scary aspect the, the baba yaga then you have the great gate of kiev which again was based on hartman's sketch of the great gate which was one of the entries. I think it may be the winning entry for the, the government of Kiev, and they were going to build this great gate. I, I don't think it was ever built, or maybe it was using another design. But, um, yeah, that's uh, wow. the culmination. Well, we're, 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 gonna, we're going to have to do a part two <laughs> because okay. this, this has been so great. And I hope, you, I hope you don't mind if we do a part two. But I think I have one more question, but I think this is a good place to, to um, put a pause on. Mm -hmm. um, and here's my last question for that. To me, one of the interesting aspects, and, and we talked about this before, is that he wrote it for piano. And I I understand that was his main instrument that he learned on, and he probably understood the best. But he had done and has, and, and there are, um, uh, you know, he's he's done operas. Um, mm -hmm. And an there's some beautiful, yeah, yeah there's some beautiful um uh, renditions of pictures as a full orchestra. So mm -hmm. why do you suspect he chose a piano um, to compose this piece? Yeah, it's interesting. We were kind of discussing this the other day and, and we're all so used to Ravel's orchestration of this. That's what's come down to, to us. And actually people don't yeah. realize that was not the first orchestration of the piece. That was, I think the third or the fourth orchestration. Um, there's one done by Henry Wood. He's a He's an English conductor. And even Rimsky-Korsakov came out with 
a, uh, a version, not the complete piece, but a version of it. And, and even Ravel's piece, which is another con controversial thing, is not complete. Um, and he changes a lot of the original text and, and it changes part of the meaning. Um, and well, there, so, and there's a lot of that I want to get into the next time with the yeah. different versions that we have of it, but yeah. yeah. But he, I think he didn't, you know, had he heard those versions at the time, maybe he would have thought of that. Uh, he certainly was a great uh -huh. orchestrator and Rimsky Korsakov, his friend was maybe one of the greatest ever. Um, but he just had that, maybe that raw sound in his mind. And there's something to the piano sound that's, that's individual and raw. And, and that's maybe just the, the technique I think is very interestingly suited. It's not always pianistic or well-suited, but mm -hmm. it works very well. Um, and I don't know why he conceived of it originally for piano. And if he had lived longer, maybe he would have made his own orchestration of it. I would have been very fascinated to hear that. Um, but you know, he died too young, so we'll never right. know exactly the reason, but certainly the piano. And you you told me, and I like this, that, that it is kind of a chicken and the egg. I mean, he, this is how he thought of it. And now so many people hear it as an orchestra piece, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that's our, our cultural baggage in a way. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I think we're going to end it here for now. And uh, and and if you're up for it, let's do a part two. And, uh, oh, and I'm up for it, yeah. Because I want to, I want to get it. I want to dig into the piece a little bit more, and 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 I'm very excited. But um, yeah. So oh, and let's end with one thing. If um, because I, I hope that we've inspired some of our listeners to to go out, reach out. If you haven't heard the piece, to to, to search it out and to listen to it. Um, where who would you recommend? Um, people, oh, to listen to. Yeah. What would you recommend listening? It's hard. I was when you asked me these questions, I kind of made some notes, and there are so many different versions because I was, as I was saying, it's such a, and you were saying it's such a personal piece. There, the the different versions are so personalized, I guess. Um, but some of the great ones to listen to, if you want your your like standard, incredible version that's just everything's all the eyes are dotted, all the T's are crossed. You know, it's hard to beat Bromfman, Geffen Bromfman, or even Barry Douglas. They have great recordings. Um, I, if you really want something that's a little out there and and interesting, Horowitz, he has an electric performance from Carnegie Hall. Uh, Moiseevich, Beno Moiseevich, phenomenal pianist, great effects. Pletniev, uh, Mikhail Pletniev, in very interesting recording and some very odd effects. When I heard that the first time in the Corn Mortuous part and the Catacombe, I was like, what, is he playing piano still? It didn't huh. sound like piano. He's doing some very interesting things with the sound and the overtone series. Uh, it's phenomenal. Wow. Um, Richter has, you know, the Sophia, Richter recorded it like 10 times in concert. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm sure he played it more, but the Sophia concert is very, very good. Um, Capel has a great one. From, I think it's from the Frick collection. Maria Udina, she's one of the great uh, Russian pianists, uh, early Russian kind of Soviet pianist, very good recording. Uh, Kisin has a great live one on YouTube that you can see Rudolf Verkuzhny, um, some other interest. The Pogorelich is a, a very controversial one. We can talk about that another time. Uh, it's very long. Yeah. I, uh, Lilia Zilberstein, she's another great Russian pianist, good recording. Brokofiev, actually, that's the first recording of it. It's incomplete, but it's from 1923. If you can find that, that's oh, fascinating. Wow. And then Brailovsky yeah. is the first complete recording in 1942. So those are, you know, there there were when I did my thesis, 349 recordings of just the piano solo version. 
Uh, and I think I'm including two or three of mine in there. Now, of course, it's it's way more than that. But, um, you know, and, and, and I of course, to probably 100. And and the um, the listeners have, have been listening to a few snippets of, of it here and there. And that's come from your recording. Oh, good. Um, cool. And so I'm. I'd also encourage them to go to your web, your website, and uh, and check out your check out your recordings. You've got some beautiful, beautiful stuff up there, Elias. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm updating my website now, so hopefully all that stuff will be available soon. <laughs> so, what is your website, Elias Axelpeterson dot com? Uh, so it's www dot. Oh, I don't even have to say that anymore. E a Peterson dot com. So e a p e t t e r s s o n dot com. And uh, it does have my CDs there available for purchase. And, uh, and then it links to my YouTube channel as well. So I've got about 40, 50 recordings on that or videos. Uh, well, I, I, I hope people will check it out and take a listen. And, and, and then we're going to do a part two. So um, awesome. this has been And If Love Remains with Elias Axel Pedersen. Thank you so much. And thank you for You're being welcome. a part of the show. Thanks, Mike. Mm-hmm.